All right. Welcome to Redemption. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are finishing up our series in 1 Corinthians over the next couple weeks. And what we've seen so far in the book of 1 Corinthians is that this is a very proud and arrogant church because of their perceived giftedness. They think that they're kind of God's gift to the world. But what we see in this text is that underneath their pride and arrogance, there's actually a deep sadness that has come over their hearts. And the reason for that is because many of the Corinthians have recently come to know Jesus, and some of them have recently lost loved ones. And so they're dealing with grief. And so although they intellectually have believed that Jesus has died and rose again, and they have grasped the concept that as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection, that they will also rise from death, they have decided to give up the belief that they will one day rise from death because of their sadness, which I think gives us insight into our own heart because we are more than just rational creatures. We like to think that what we believe is just a function of our headspace, but often our heart gets involved almost involuntarily. And so it's possible that there's those of you who are here this morning that are on the verge of giving up your Christian faith because you're sad. There is something that has happened in your life that came out of nowhere that has so thrown you off emotionally that you're sitting here this morning and you're like, Okay, I intellectually grasp what Jesus has done, but my heart does not believe it. And so you might be like the Corinthian church on the verge of throwing it all away, of giving it all up in our cultural vernacular of deconstructing your faith. And so if that's you, this message is for you. And here's what Paul reminds us of in this text, is that the resurrection of Jesus is our certain hope. Now, notice how I stated that. I didn't say that we're always certain of our hope in the resurrection. I said that the resurrection of Jesus is our certain hope, and that's an important distinction because our faith waxes and wanes. But Jesus is sure. So let's look at three reasons that this is true from this text. The first one is historical reality. The historical reality of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19. Let's read that again. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, some people make the argument that all faiths are basically the same. And the reasoning goes something like this. It says, listen, if you look at all the world religions, they all have basically the same morality. Something like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And because we're all basically following the same path, then if we're all following the same path, then it all leads to the same destination. So why get too hung up on the particulars? So it basically says that all religions believe that the good people who follow the right path end up in the right destination, and the bad people who don't follow that path don't end up in the right destination. Now, something that we can agree with about that argument as Christians is that we do believe that people ought to be basically moral, to follow God's commands, and we certainly don't think we should throw out doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. But where that argument falls apart for us as Christians is we simply don't believe that the good people end up in the right destination in the end and that the bad people end up in the wrong destination in the end. We believe that what matters is what you believe about Jesus. And here's the reason for that. We believe that it is a historical fact that Jesus lived perfectly died sacrificially, and rose again, never to die again. The reason that we believe that this is true is for the same reason that we believe other historical facts. It is historically verifiable. There were many eyewitnesses to his resurrection, 500 in total. This is really important for those of you who are specifically dealing with doubts right now. And I think it's the reason that Paul encourages this Corinthian church with these basic facts about the resurrection. It's because when you are doubting, your mind starts to play tricks on you. And you need a foundation that is certain to land your mind on. Paul is reminding the Corinthians and he's reminding us that we are not saved by faith in faith or by a shot in the dark. We are saved by what Jesus has done outside of us in history. 
So if the normal way of thinking about religion as something that you do is similar to fighting in a war. So let's say we're in the 1700s and the Revolutionary War is toward its end. Now, there's two ways that you could hear about the war. One would be, hey, the United States needs more troops to fight in the war, so we need you to, to sign up and we need you to get out and we need you to fight in the war because there's something to be done and if you don't fight in the war, then the war's not gonna be won, which would be a terrible burden and it would require a lot of sacrifice and for you to do that in order for the war to be won. Now, if the war was towards its end and you thought that you were gonna have to fight in the war and then you got news, somebody stands up in the town square in your little village somewhere in colonial America and says, the war is over, it's done, it's finished. The victory has been won. All you have to do for the burden to be lifted from your heart is believe. It's over. The work is finished. We believe that the gospel, specifically the resurrection of Jesus, is not good advice. It's not, if you follow this list of rules, then you will be saved. If you have this much faith, then you'll be saved. If you repent this much, then you'll be saved. If you cry over all the things that you've done this much, then you'll be saved. We don't believe it's good advice. We believe it's good news. And the good news is that Jesus, whether you believe it or not, died and is risen from death. If this news is not true, then we better throw it all away. Paul says, if the news is not true, we are of all people most to be pitied. Our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. Because we believe that our faith rests in something that was accomplished outside of us, and that the result is something that happens within us, but we are saved by the finished work of Christ alone. There is nothing that we could possibly do to save ourselves. Our faith rests in historical fact. The second reason we see in the text that the resurrection of Jesus is our certain hope is our eternal destiny. Look at verses 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in its own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
So Paul uses this agricultural metaphor in this text. And he says, okay, Corinthian church, you've believed that Jesus died and rose again, but you've given up your belief that your loved ones are going to rise again someday. And by extension, you've given up the belief that you're going to rise again someday. I want you to understand that Jesus didn't just die and rise again so that we would say, wow, that was amazing that that happened to Jesus. He died as the first fruits. And so here's what we believe as Christians. What happened to Jesus will happen to us. So the first fruits of a harvest would be the first part of the harvest. So what Paul's having them envision is an apple tree. And he's saying, look, look at this apple tree. It's springtime. The apples are about to come. And here's, here's the thing. When you see the first couple apples bloom on that tree, what you know is that there's going to be many more apples. It gives you hope. And he's saying Jesus is the first fruits. And so look at his resurrection and understand that you are going to follow the same pattern in your life. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is predictive foreshadowing. The same thing that happened to him will happen to you. So one day, you will die, but your death as a believer in Jesus will not be your end, but will be a brand new beginning. Death will not have the final word. This is because, and Paul makes a a deeper historical argument here, God has always dealt with people with representative heads. So our first representative head, the representative head of all humanity, was this guy named Adam. All you need to know about Adam for this sermon is that he totally screwed it up for all of us. And... So Adam screwed up for all of us, but I don't know if you've thought about this. One sin cursed the whole world, which seems like a bit of an overreaction from our standpoint on God's part. But here's the reason that that happened is because Adam was a public person. He was representative of all of humanity. So what happened to Adam as a result of his sin has happened to all of us as well. It was extended to us. So the whole world was cursed because of one person's sin. And now the whole world is blessed through one person's resurrection. Jesus came to represent all of humanity. And so we are born into being represented by Adam, and by faith, we are represented by Christ, which gives us hope. And our hope is that we will be with Christ forever. So Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. He'll deliver the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So as a result of Jesus' 
representing us, we will see the day when the sadness and the brokenness of our lives and the lives of those around us is undone and is swallowed up into a great story where everything that we hate about this world and all the enemies that we have on this earth, including Satan himself, will be destroyed and we will be with God forever. So here's the question that I have for you. Who do you want as your representative? Because in our doubt, what we tend to do is we choose the wrong representative. We choose Adam rather than choosing Christ. I think we've all had a vivid example of the faulty representatives that we put our trust in as we've participated in various ways in March Madness, right? So, guys, how many times have our hearts been broken throughout this tournament? How many times do you fill out your bracket and you hope that maybe, like we all have this faint hope, like I'm going to have the perfect bracket this year. And then we just see that fall apart on day one. Well, maybe I'm like the prime example of this in the room. I grew up in West Lafayette, Indiana. I have been a Purdue fan since I was this big. They experienced the greatest defeat in NCAA tournament history this year. And it's embarrassing to me how much that affected my emotional state for days. Why? I was trusting in the wrong representative. I've talked about this before. We believe in representation, and that's made most clear to us in sports. How do we talk about sports? We won the game. We lost the game. You didn't do anything. It was a bunch of 20-year-old, 18, 19-year-old dudes who were 1,000 miles away who were actually playing the game, and yet we let them represent us and our destiny is determined by their performance. And Paul is saying to us, you want your destiny to be secure. Don't trust in yourself to be your representative. Don't trust in the goodness of humanity to be your representative. Put your trust in Jesus to be your representative. And what happened to him will happen to you. So here's where we're at. This is really important. This is where we're at in the story. We're in the death part of the story. The reason that your life feels hard and it feels broken is, yes, you've been redeemed by Jesus. Yes, he's put his spirit inside of you. Yes, you're not as bad as you would have been without him. But we are walking in the valley of the shadow of death. And in all of our future, unless Jesus comes back first, we and everyone we love will die. And what we see in Christ's representation is that that death is not the end. But we will die, and we will rise, and we will live forever. That's our destiny. The third reason that we see that the resurrection of 
Jesus is our certain hope is that it provides for us daily motivation. Here's what I mean. Some of us, we need the big theology. Some of us, we just need hope to take the next step. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34. It says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Good question. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company rules, ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Okay, so what is happening in Corinth that they are being baptized on behalf of the dead? So the first thing we need to see is that this text is descriptive, not prescriptive. Nowhere in the New Testament is there ever an exhortation by anyone to be baptized on behalf of the dead. Paul is just stating that these people are being baptized on behalf of the dead, not telling us that we should do that. Just in case you're wondering if you should go be baptized on behalf of your grandma or something like that. That is not what Paul's saying. Here's what he's doing. He's dealing very gently with a mistake that they're making. So here's what's happening in the Corinthian situation. They are so sad that their relatives have died. They had the expectation that Jesus would come back before they died, and so they don't know how to deal with the particular situation that they're in. And some of their relatives who had trusted in Christ never were baptized. And so the Corinthians are like, we have an idea. Since they were supposed to get baptized, Let's get baptized on their behalf just to make sure that they're okay, that they make it in the end. And here's what Paul's saying. Okay, let me get this straight. You guys gave up the hope that your relatives would be raised from death, and yet you're being baptized on their behalf. Why? Because you actually believe that they're going to be raised from death. The reason that you're getting baptized on their behalf is because you think that it will positively impact their eternal destiny. So Paul says, listen, your behavior, even though it's a little messed up, is contradicting what you say you believe. See, the sorrow hasn't completely killed your faith in the resurrection. So he's building a bridge between him and the Corinthians, and he's saying, hey, listen, your behavior shows you believe that your relatives, and by extension, you, will be raised from death. I believe that too. Here's how that shows up in my behavior. He says, I'm in danger every hour. You can see that I believe in the resurrection of the dead, 
Because I'm going from city to city and I'm preaching the gospel and I'm being persecuted for that gospel message. And at times people are picking up rocks and throwing them at me to the point where I almost die. And you're wondering why I do that. And the reason is because I believe that if somebody throws that last stone and kills me, that I will go and be with Jesus and that that will not be my end, but I will at some point rise from death. That is not the end of my story. That will be the beginning of my story. He says, okay, guys, if I didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, why would I fight with beasts at Ephesus? Wow. Paul apparently fought with lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. He, dude went crazy, fought off some animals at some point. He's saying... The resurrection shows up in my life by the way that I live for the gospel. He's saying the alternative to having that type of hope and taking the next step and doing the next right thing is the cultural vernacular of your day, the common saying, which actually is still a common saying in our day, let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So here's how the Corinthian church is dealing with their sadness and their depression and their anxiety. They are partying. They're getting drunk. They're going out on Thursday and Friday night, Saturday night. And the reason that Paul says that they're doing that And the reason that you're doing that is because you've given up hope. You think it's better to be drunk and forget about how sad I am than to sit in the sadness. And Paul says, listen, Christian, you still believe in resurrection. And let me say to those of you, maybe that was you this Thursday or this Friday. You were stumbling around. And even as I say that, there's a shame that comes over you. I don't want the shame to come over you. I want the shame to be off of you. And I want you to remember this. You're here right now because there's still hope. You came hoping to hear a word from God that would shake you out of your sin. Because when you sin, and all of us know this intuitively, we sin because we're hopeless. And we're looking for a temporary pleasure to fill an eternal desire And Paul is saying, it can never do it. The daily motivation for living is that this life and its desires are passing away. But we will be with Jesus forever. So here's 
what Paul is exhorting us to do. Wake up. He's saying, listen, you've lived too long in this drunken stupor, in this hopelessness and doubt, in letting your sorrow and your sadness get the best of you. He's saying, wake up and don't go on sinning because there's hope. And then he says this statement, for some have no knowledge of God. So specifically, our daily hope is this. We have a father in heaven who loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die on our behalf. And he sees us. He knows the hopelessness that fills our hearts. He knows the confusion. He knows the doubt. And he is saying, wake up to this knowledge that God has what's best for you. That he sees you, that he knows you, that he loves you. And here's what that does. It creates in us action. Action to love other people, action to get up in the day, action to take the next step. I don't know if you ever experienced this as a kid, but I remember at times my parents would be gone from our house, and they hadn't told us to clean up the house or do anything around the house at all, but my sisters and I, for whatever reason, we would know that mom and dad were coming home, and we knew that it would please them, make them happy for us to clean up the house. It would surprise them. And so we would scramble around the house, maybe even clean a toilet, I mean, do the unthinkable. Why? Because there was this hope in our heart that mom and dad would come home and the surprise of us having done something unexpected would give them joy and they would look at us and be like, no way. Thank you so much. And Paul is saying, our hope, is that we will see God face to face. And there won't be a frown on his face, but a smile. He's not counting our sins against us. Remember that part of the story where he counted all those on Jesus? So like your sin, even the stuff you did this weekend, that's nailed to the cross. And so he's going to look at your life and his assessment is going to be well done, good and faithful servant. And because of that, because it's a gracious hope, we live today not for ourselves, but for him. So here's the real choice that we have going forward. Jesus told this story about either building your life on the sand or building your life on the rock. Here's the sand, this life, this world your desires. Here's what we know about all those things. They're all passing away. The waves of sorrow and sadness are going to wash that sandcastle into the sea. All of our hopes and dreams, in some sense, in this life, will be dashed by death. Here's the rock, Jesus, his resurrection, our eternal destiny, that God is not counting our sins against us, but is pleased with us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. And so 
even in our sorrow, we stand on that rock, we look down, and we take the next step. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that there is a foundation that is deeper than my emotional state, that is deeper than my wavering faith, that is deeper than the griefs and sorrows in my life. Thank you that you meet us where we really are, that you don't hold our sin against us, that you don't hold our doubting against us, but every week you invite us back to relationship with you. I pray specifically for that person who has given up. They're here, maybe somebody dragged them here, maybe they're here and had to try church one last time before they bail, or they're here sad, expecting almost nothing. Would you light the fire of hope in their soul again? That God, they would see that although they can do nothing for themselves, to pull themselves out of the hole that they find themselves in, that you can, that you're powerful. Would you bring us hope?